Please note, in this episode, we are discussing topics that could be triggering to some listeners. Feel free to skip this episode if you need or want. Hi everyone, welcome back to Prevention Nation. Where we believe education and awareness can change the culture of violence. My name is Roy Lutz. And I'm Caitlin Wagenfield. Welcome back to Prevention Nation. It's Roy here with Caitlin and uh, it is September and we are talking about Suicide Awareness Month. Um, this is a month where I think uh, we can address some issues of things that we see in our work, um, things we know about from our colleagues and some of our community partners who are doing this work more intentionally. And then I just think we can draw on some experiences as well. Um, Caitlin, what do you want to talk about on this topic? Well, I know that we are violence prevention, and specifically domestic violence, but... I think it's good for us to violence prevention, and that's exactly what this is. So. I'm, I, I hate to interrupt, but I, I really appreciate you saying that because that's something that um, when we had a former, um, a former staff member uh, die by suicide, one of the things and one of the discussions that kind of came about here at this agency resulting from that um, was the nature of this suicide is the, the self-inflicted violence um, that would be, you know, the, the opposite of that would be homicide, you know, uh, committing violence to somebody else. Suicide is something, one thing I, th- I think anyways, that's much uh, under talked about is that it is a form of violence. It's a form of personal violence. So, yeah, I just appreciate you mentioning and making those synonymous a little bit. So Yeah, and something we talk about talk about a lot here is that prevention is prevention is prevention. Right. So while we're talking about suicide prevention um but we're also talking about the same things that would prevent domestic violence so connection absolutely support those risk factors right so it it all aligns yeah i mean you you hit that right on the head when you said prevention is prevention is prevention because you're right whether we're talking violence prevention uh, suicide prevention substance abuse prevention um any of those things they're all coming down to those same factors that draw a person into those into those some of those ills you know the, the, the things that cause you to not like yourself or be depressive or yeah yeah so yeah. and while usually we're talking about domestic violence prevention and we know that that typically affects women mm-hmm. suicide prevention this is something that we need to talk about for the men so the rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged white men okay and we have the any exact- any reason why anything that any knowledge in there why I mean, I could think about stressors in general for me, but that's just my perspective as a woman. But we also do know that fire o- firearms accounted for 54.64% of all suicide deaths, and it is a fact that men are more likely to die by suicide using a firearm. Um, women are more considerate about how they're going to look after that they die. Interesting. Interesting uh, stats and figures about that. With the age, middle-aged men, uh, one of the things I found in some of my research was that uh, baby boomers are considered considered the suicide generation. Um, That was a generation that, uh, from the bit of research I was looking at, um, some of the indicators or the reasons why was that was a population that um, these types of social movements, awareness around mental Mm -hmm. health, were new this the baby boomer generation had no experience to draw from about treating it communicating it um dealing with it it just manifested and 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 built 
underneath uh, in the secrecy of the boomer generation, um, people chose not to talk about those things. It was it was a family's business. Um, a lot of those a lot of those components around the secrecy, uh, I think, is some of the some of the stuff I've read uh, that causes uh, the baby boomer generation to be the suicide generation, um, and. Uh, and in that the baby boomer generation, some of the stats that I thought were interesting that was depression was involved in at least half the attempts and suspected in many, many more. Substance abuse, uh, specifically alcohol, was highly prevalent. Um, and they found that the wealthier uh, the population, it the higher the rate of suicide. And the correlation to that, I don't know. I didn't get that far into the research, but I'm curious about it. I don't know if... If that is also part, um, maybe, maybe that it comes from that again that secrecy about you know that that was the generation that you know didn't talk about politics, don't talk about religion. You everything was so internalized. I mean, this was also the population I saw that recently um, a TikTok that said about elbows on the table that that is a baby boomer uh, practice. That this whole notion of table etiquette that's going away. These next generations are getting rid of that. And I think they're getting rid of that secrecy, all those, all those ills that are associated with the boomer generation. So I don't know, just some interesting information. Yeah. So my parents are baby boomers and something that my mom and my dad as well talked a lot about was um, when it came to mental health and stuff like that. So their parents were born in like great depression and like post great depression and they struggled a lot with stuff that was very hard um, mm-hmm. physically like in the moment in real life not within themselves and i'm sure they did struggle with depression and anxiety because of lack of financial just like financial security that's the word i'm looking for yeah and so when it came down to their kids talking about you know i'm sad and i want to talk about this that didn't matter because they were still struggling financially right even when so my dad was born in 1956 and we know the great depression was in the 1930s but they were still recovering from that. So my mm-hmm. family was a family of farmers with a name like Wagonfield. We have to be. <laughs> but yeah. they were still trying to financially recover from that. Right. So talking about our feelings wasn't really a thing. Now, something mm-hmm. that my parents did was always making sure that we were heard. My mom struggled with anxiety really bad, and she's always been open about that with us. And I think her being open about that was – it made it easier for me when I was 13 to go to my mom and say, I'm really struggling with these feelings I'm having. And then they, we sat down and worked through a solution. We went to the doctor, um, and their experience really shaped them as parents. But I also know that some baby boomer generation parents then went the opposite way. They continued in the traditions that they were raised in. Right. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, speaking to that, so my work in engaging men um, through the uh, Ohio Men's Action Network and um, just some of the other areas, arenas that I've done this engaging men work, um, something that I've really observed, heard through conversations and witnessed in, in sorts of trainings and videos was that, um, you know, this the prevalence of this occurring in middle-aged men, I think men have really perpetuated that tradition that you're talking about these these traditional roles stereotypes that we um, all fit into in some shape way or form Um, men have historically worked in jobs with the highest risk of serious injury or death men have um, in um, all through time have worked uh, with this mentality of this 
need. My value is determined based on my ability and need to provide for a family. And when you don't meet that need, um, men have traditionally, um, that's really impacted them profoundly. I mean, they, to, uh, I think to, to the point of increasing their risk for suicidality, they, they're not, they're not fulfilling their role as a man. And I think that's one of the cool things that's being done in the engaging men work, uh, the field of engaging men is challenging those social norms of what a man has to be. It doesn't have to be this provider. It doesn't have to be this, all the, you know, X, Y, and Z, because it's all these same things that are causing us to cause harm to ourselves when we're not meeting those expectations. So, yeah, I think challenging social norms um, that are passed down generationally and then just even that are passed down through our social environments is important, you know. But that also goes back to the connectedness, Mm -hmm. connected to your family. So when you are feeling that you need to be the provider and you're working long hours, you're disconnected from your spouse, you're disconnected from your children, you're disconnected from your friends. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest protective factors that I found online was just feeling connected to support groups or being connected to resources, whether that be a therapist or a doctor that's able to give you something to help you get through the depression. Um, Well, that's so scary when you say that because, I mean – in, in some ways, we're this next generation, these, and when I say next, I mean the next after you, not after me. Um, we're a little bit, a little age difference. But in some of these, yes, in this, in this new, you know, generation being birthed now, um, we think of them as the connected um, generation because of all the online social media presence and just the connectedness through the, through the internet. However... Every bit of research we're seeing and stuff is that kids are feeling oftentimes more disconnected than ever before. I wonder how that, you know, I mean, I wonder, I just wonder what that lends to the com- the conversation of suicidality. Yeah, so I actually do have a statistic here. Okay. So suicide was the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 14. 10 years old. I wonder now, I'm, I'm going to speak out at turn here a little bit i just read some research that um the number one um cause for young children's death is firearms if the number two one is suicidality i wonder how many of those suicides are completed via firearms and then i just think to myself then with car accidents and cancer um being the next ones uh, on the list um it feels like it feels like some of these, the highest risk things for our kids, the things that are responsible for so many children's deaths are so preventable. That's <laughs> what makes it really hard working in the field of prevention and then having discussions like this because this disconnectedness in youth, increasing the risk of suicidality, this access to firearms, increasing the risk of suicidality, this, uh, um, it just feels like, feels like we should be able to do a lot to prevent this stuff. Yeah, so um, 988, which is the National um, Crisis Hotline for Mental Health, they actually have a campaign they're doing for Suicide Prevention Month, and it's called Be The One Two. And one of those hashtags is Be The One Two, Keep Them Safe. So studies indicate that when lethal means are made less available or less deadly, suicide rates by that method decline. So if they're less likely to be able to get a sharp object they're less likely to harm themselves that way and that's all in safety planning and i know we both come from intervention backgrounds so i'm sure you know all about safety plans oh yeah 
Safety um, planning, intervent, yeah, all those intervention strategies, uh, risk reduction, all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, so that's just something that I thought about was safety planning and keeping them safe. And it's that's what happens when you know that your kid is having struggles, right? Or anybody, mm-hmm. right? Anybody in your life, your friend, um, you know that, okay, if, if my roommate that I live with, I know that they struggle with self-harm or have... I might remove a door to prevent them from locking themselves in a room. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, little steps exactly but what safety planning can we be doing every day just mm-hmm. so that way the people in our lives that maybe we don't know are struggling don't so, have the opportunity yeah that's so interesting because i was just reading about a guy named uh david lester he was uh he's his title is mr suicidology he's uh very um well uh, i guess i don't even know the word he's written a lot of literature um it's all over the internet uh, academia the world of academia um, but he spoke a lot to, and I was in some of my initial research, he spoke a lot to these um, risk reduction, uh, safety planning uh, protocols and steps. But you're exactly right. He talked about that that was once you're aware. But a big body of his work is on this concept and idea of what systems are we putting in place for the people who we are, we are unaware of where they're at in this in this process of uh contemplating or thinking about uh, harming oneself yeah Yeah. so one of my best friends his name was aaron he died by suicide october 7th of 2015 and i remember when the news was kind of broken to us everybody had the same initial reaction which was him Mm -hmm. he's so happy he's the person you want to be around like he was like sunshine yeah. And everybody was just so surprised. And his parents never considered the fact that he would be the person to die by suicide. But um, a lot of questions came, you know, the guilt, the blaming yourself, um, which is so unfortunate. It's the hard. I think the hardest part for people left behind was thinking about all the things you could have done, those preventative factors you could have put in place. But something his um, stepdad had mentioned was, what if he had just not known the combination to the safe where the gun was? So talking about those, you know, those protective factors, the, yeah. you know, keeping them safe, that safety planning. But how often is it the person that you don't think is going to hurt themselves? It's so funny that you mentioned that because I think we were talking about this yesterday, the other day before. Um, I didn't know who this guy was. He was apparently online a lot, social media TikTok, I think YouTube, uh, he went by Von Vitti was his name. Um, but he just posted a, um, a video that has gone around on TikTok. I've seen around on TikTok a lot. Um, but he talks in this video. It's just a, it's a video of him standing and talking to the camera saying he has had a terrific life in his perspective. He's got to travel, um, through his social work and social media as an influencer. He's got to see all corners of the world. Um, he said that he truly feels like a happy person that he's lived a happy and fulfilled life um he talks about uh, all the the um followers he's had on social media and all the kindness that's been extended to him and he does this all and he's just a young guy in there i mean i would guess maybe 34 maybe at most um but the whole video is about it's it's he posted the video or had the video posted the video just prior to him um, completing a, an act of uh, dying by suicide. And and it just really kind of lends to the idea that you think of a person who 
um, is planning this or thinking about this is somebody who's who appears outwardly to be very depressive and lethargic and stuff. But Von Vady did not give that impression. He he talks about how he's very grateful for all these things. But I think ultimately it was the internal battle that was too much that he couldn't continue any longer. And when, and it makes me think of stars like Robin Williams and some of these people that everybody thought, you know, oh my gosh, look at this person. They're so entertaining and engaging and happy. But that's not any real indication of how a person is functioning inside. So, yeah. So just looking for that sad person, that's not that's not it, right? Right. That's yeah. why the same thing we we keep saying, we have to have those protective factors in everyday life for every person. Yeah. What do you think are some of the most important protective factors that you can think of off the top of your head? Like, what do you think is most important? We're going back to connectedness. When I was mm-hmm. doing intervention, the kids that were the most at risk were the ones that had one parent that they lived with, no other family around them. Maybe yeah. they weren't super connected at school. They didn't have a lot of friends. There wasn't that connection. There wasn't that person for them to talk to so even if they didn't appear outwardly depressed maybe they seemed fine and their parent would say they seem fine i don't know why we have these services yeah but something flagged to the school Mm -hmm. whether it be that they didn't have that support system so our biggest thing was building that for them helping them build natural supports in their everyday life whether that be getting them connected to after school groups um or in your every like for me I like to I like to go on hikes. I like to go to the park. I know me and you are both people that like to just talk to every single person and try to build connections everywhere we go. Right. Um, but even just having conversations like that, that's connectedness. It's a mutual connection with a person, just finding something you have in common. It, it does something for the soul, for me personally. Okay, so connectedness, I mean, so, yeah, I think that's – I. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it. There's a, with every situation that I've heard about personally um, or professionally, I think that there's always a component of isolation mm-hmm. involved in there, um, and the connectedness. And, and I'm not going to go into details of the specific case, um, but somebody that uh, some of us here at uh, Safe on Main knew and was very close with, um, when that uh, when that situation occurred, that's what a lot of us were left with was this sense of our failure to connect where did we fail to connect when we thought we should have um we even to a point where we afterward for long afterward we thought um you know we often had conversation around when you think of somebody give them a call you know if if somebody comes to my mind i'm going to give them a call i'm going to write them a letter i'm going to send them a note or i'm going to do something because you know that impression maybe there's something to that impression we get about connecting with somebody maybe they need that maybe maybe that smile that you lend to them or that hug or handshake or just a simple hello maybe that's the that one thing connecting them to today that might help prevent them from making um a a, a very terrible decision so yeah i think connectedness the notion of isolation is really important as well yeah i think what something else i you know i think one of the protective factors i think about is having a plan for a future like Having a vision for one's future uh, is important. I was just um, uh, reading an article and it caused me to look up some videos of this guy, um, Professor Galloway. He's the marketing um, professor at NYU uh, uh, in the Stern School of Business. And he runs their pivot podcasts and stuff. And one of the things he talked about um, is this uh, arc of happiness that in life, 
uh, there's an arc of happiness, and this arc uh, represents it. It is visualized as a smile, and you know, higher on the you know both ends and lower in the middle. And he says that this arc, uh, it uh, expands across all economic, geographic, and cultural boundaries. It doesn't seem to be any population that doesn't fulfill that same arc, create that same arc when looking at happiness. But he kind of defines it as that zero to 25 is roughly the age of like Disney, Han Solo. It's your siblings. It's fun times. It's imaginative. It's child, being a child. Um, and he talks about uh, uh, 45 and after uh, we, you know, start to see life as more finite. Um, he talks about how that you are generally more financially stable. You appreciate being with people you've loved um, over the years. Things slow down for you, and you appreciate things like your health, food, and friendships, and nature. Um, but the point of the conversation is that he said 25 to 45 um, is, you know, is when things get real in your life. He said this is the, the bottom of that arc there where people are less happy. And he says, you, you, you're realizing, and, and quoting him, you're probably realizing that you won't be a senator. You won't have a frag fragrance named after you. Someone you know and love dies in that time period. You're at your most poor, struggling to find a career, a meaning to your life. Having kids, and then he talks uh, pretty extensively how stressful children are, is wonderful and it's such a blessing as they are. They are very stressful. You're buying homes. Um, you're in the center of the toughest parts of your life. And I just think to myself, when people, you know, I have a daughter who's 21 years old. She's constantly talking about how, like, I didn't anticipate it being this hard. I think having an awareness that you're in the hardest stage of your life. So this is normal when you're feeling depressed. I think normalizing conversations around depression. I guess that's kind of what I'm thinking is the protective factors. Understanding what kind of some patterns of life in general and normalizing conversations around that this is normal to feel depressed right now. Why wouldn't you? Life is tough when you're in your early 20s. So it gets easier. I'm 51, almost 51. So it's getting easier for me now. Yeah. So. I actually have had that same discussion with a lot of my friends recently. So I'm 23. I graduated college a year early. So I did kind of get thrown into like real world, mm -hmm. a lot of house, like working a year sooner than all my friends I went to college with and right. my friends I went to high school with. And... That year was so incredibly hard for me. I mean, things are still very hard, but not as bad as they were. And it's just one of those things you have to get through it. Um, and I was explaining to my friends that every bad time you've ever had, you've gotten through. So you just have to be like kind of looking for that light at the end of the tunnel, even if it's just, hey, I'm able to pay all my bills this month and I can still get coffee from Starbucks if I want. Like, eat, like the small things. Mm -hmm. But having that conversation with them because then they graduated and – even though I'm not that far removed from that year after college, I'm enough removed to have some perspective on it, right? So that was the hardest year. And it's a little bit easier now, still hard, but a little bit easier because I'm able to manage it. I'm able to think about that arc that this is supposed to be hard. When, I, when that connected in my head, things got easier. And I explained that to my friends who, I did have one friend who specifically was struggling really hard. It's like, it's supposed to be hard right now and it's gonna get better. And you're still trying to figure out what you want to do, right? So she's not working in the field that she got her degree in. And I think she feels a lot of failure when that comes to that. I'm like, but that's okay. Because let's, all, let's look at how many ki kids, as if we're children, we're not adults. And I'm still that, a little bit of a kid sometimes. Right, that graduate from college and aren't working in their field. Technically, I'm not working in my field. And I'm not either. I have a psychology and communications degree. Now, do I use a lot of that in what I do? Yes. 
but I got creative with the, with this job. But just pushing through, like, and you shouldn't have to push through. You should be able to talk about it. And that's why I was, I was glad I was able to be that connection for my friend. Right. But it is hard out here. <laughs> it is very challenging. It's well, chaos down here, Tom. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. And this is a hard conversation all the time, too, because I think we both have um, cases that we can draw on, personal cases that we can draw on, um, professional cases, and then just, you know, professional education and awareness. But I don't know. I, I think it's an important conversation. Um, my, uh, I think my advice to people listening out there, if you're struggling, I mean, obviously, I think the the, the go-to is talk to somebody. But, you know, connect, get some help and get some support. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I, I admit I'm struggling. I struggle. I struggle with this conversation because some of those personal and professional cases, I know um, these, these people were absolutely and completely aware of the protocols and procedures and steps. So, I mean, I would never obviously advise somebody don't get support, obviously get support, but I'm just always challenged with this conversation because a lot of them are already aware of that, but they're deliberately not getting that. So how does one get somebody to get support when they're intentionally not wanting to get support? I don't know. I, I think, uh, I think what I fall back on is, um, is kind of what I mentioned earlier. If I have, um, I think just where I'm at personally in this conversation is if I think about somebody, I try to, I try to reach out to them. I try to extend kindness all the time to people. I, start, I try to make myself available emotionally, uh, having conversations, whatever it is. I try to make myself available to somebody. If so, that way, if they are desiring to reach out to somebody, I'm, I'm here. So We talk a lot about being the person that shows up on this podcast. I've noticed when it comes to caring adults, when we're talking about this, just being the type of person that shows up for somebody, yeah. even if they're not asking for it. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think you just said it better than I did. I, I stumbled over my words a lot, but I think you're right. I mean, I think that's what it is. It's, it's showing up, being, being there, showing up. There's been a, a little bit of stumbling for me too. It's a, a hard topic, especially when we both have these mm-hmm. connections to it. And I think that's okay to acknowledge that yeah. this is such a hard topic, not just to talk about in a profession professional field but like on an emotional level oh absolutely yeah um, well i think i i mean i don't know what you have left to offer the conversation right now i mean we'll obviously continue this conversation um throughout the year i think each season we do a couple com- uh, conversations podcasts about uh suicide awareness but i i think for today what i what i feel i'd like to leave this on um like i said on my end is one um the suicide hotline uh, we're gonna leave that in the show notes, absolutely. But that is nine eight eight. If you're if you're feeling like um, suicidal, homicidal, feeling like self harming, call. Please call that number. Please reach out to somebody. Reach out to a friend. Somebody that's that's showed up. Um, and then second uh, and lastly, what I'd like to do is um, just call out um, how important it is just to normalize conversation around this talk with your friends make this a conversation that isn't awkward isn't weird isn't strange so that way those people in our lives who um are giving no other indications or flags that they're struggling with something that they have no reason to not feel comfortable having conversations about this because conversations i have to believe um caitlin i have to believe that conversations 
will help. I don't know. I don't know. That's but that's where I'm at right now. So just gotta remember that it's okay not to be okay. Amen. Yeah. It's okay not to be okay. Well, is that all we got? That's all we got. Okay, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and uh, and show up. 